Let's pray for Amy. Father, thank you that Amy has come here to speak the word this morning. And we just pray your anointing, your blessing, your protection, your filling upon her, Lord. And um, we pray that you would give us the ears to hear and the heart and mind to understand what you're saying through Amy. And that we wouldn't just hear it, but put it into practice, Lord God. So we just pray your your blessing on Amy. We thank you for her in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. It's been such a joy um, to be here with you at St Mungo's this weekend. Thank you so much, Ollie and Julia and the rest of the vestry. It was great to meet you on Friday night, um, but just to feel so at home with you this weekend. So thank you. If you have a Bible, I'd love you to open it at 1 Samuel 17. You might have it on your phone. And um, I'm going to just read the end of the chapter It's one of the most famous stories in the Bible, the defeat of the great giant Goliath by the boy David. But we're going to read from verse 54. So this is after David has defeated Goliath. David took the Philistine's head and brought it to Jerusalem. He put the Philistine's weapons into his own tent. As Saul watched David going out to meet the Philistine, he said to Abner, commander of the army, Abner, whose son is that young man? Abner replied, as surely as you live, your majesty, I don't know. The king said, find out whose son this young man is. As soon as David returned from killing the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul, with David still holding the Philistine's head, Whose son are you, young man? Saul asked him. And David said, I am the son of your servant, Jesse of Bethlehem. Lord, we pray that as we look at your word this morning, you would be here, the living word, and that you would speak to us by the power of your spirit in the name of Jesus. Amen. So I want to um, speak this morning and explore together that question. Whose son are you? The theme today is knowing whose we are so we can know who we are as the children of God. The story is told of a child who asked his father, Dad, how did people come to be born? And his father said, well, there was Adam and there was Eve and they made babies. And then their babies became adults and made babies and so on. That's how the human race got started. The child was not totally persuaded by this, so he went to his mum. He said, Mum, how did people come to be? And she told him, well, millions of years ago, we were apes, and then we evolved to become like we are now. The child rang back to his dad and said, Dad, you lied to me. This is what Mum said. And his father said, no, darling, your mum was talking about her side of the family. Okay, we've got some interesting family dynamics in this church, clearly. Right, whose son? Now notice three times in this short text, just a few verses, four or five verses, three times the same question is articulated. Now, um, one of the things that's useful to know about the Hebrew language is that you know how um, all languages have different ways of demonstrating emphasis. So my parents, my mum's about to turn 80, 
my dad is already in his 80s, and my parents sometimes have technological challenges, right? And occasionally might send me a text message with all the capitals on. And I have to say, Mum, you know, if you send a message like that, the person receiving it thinks you're shouting. It's, you know, like, ah, it's emphasis, isn't it? All caps on. In the Hebrew language, the way you express um, emphasis or a superlative is that you say the thing twice. So if I wanted to say, my friend Julia is very hospitable, I would say, my friend Julia is hospitable, hospitable. So you use repetition for emphasis. And, that's, and usually that happens twice. And that's why in Hebrew, when the Old Testament speaks of God as holy, 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 to say something three times is a category beyond superlative. So God is not just holy, holy, he's holy, 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 a category beyond a category that language could describe. So something being repeated three times in the Old Testament is not an accident. There's a literary emphasis being put on this text here. So this phrase, whose son are you? Find out whose son that young man is, whose son are you, is very intentionally, the writer of this is drawing our attention to it. Whose son is this person? Someone find out whose son they are. And then directly to David, whose son are you? Now, I just want to do a slight segue and say, obviously, in this church gathering, we're not all men, right? Some of us are women. But in the Bible, women are included in the book of Romans and in other contexts in Jesus. Women are included as the son and heir, just as men are included as the bride of Christ. So theologically, as you hear this question in the Old Testament, we read the Old Testament through the lens of Jesus. So if you feel excluded by that phrase, whose son are you? Remember, you are not excluded, just like a man is not excluded from being the bride of Christ. Women in this place were not excluded from being the son. And this is significant because in the cultural context of the day of this text, being a son had a particular meaning into which the New Testament people of God, women are now also included, right? We're adopted into the family of God. So a son in the Old Testament carries the DNA of the parent, and when you look at somebody's son, you see the likeness of the parent. So in that cultural context, Saul had seen that David had killed Goliath. In other words, he'd seen the heavenly kingdom Breaking into earth, he'd seen a battle won miraculously against all the odds. And his immediate question, not an obvious question to us, is whose son is that? What parent is that individual who's just won this extraordinary battle? What parent are they connected to? You see, being a son meant that you represented more than yourself. The question is asking, in whose name is this person standing and operating? A son was the representative, the inheritor of the wealth and the influence of the family. 
The son carried the hopes and dreams and visions and potential of the parents. The son carried the character and compassion and power of the parent. And so when something like a small boy defeating a huge giant occurred, Saul looked at that person and asked, whose son is that? And so today, I want to ask you, whose son are you? And we are all sons. Romans 8, verse 14. Those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption, men and women, to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. And the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. And now if we are children, then we are heirs, men and women, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we might share in his glory. Whose son are you? I want to spend the rest of our um, time together reflecting on what it might mean to own that status of sonship and what it might look like given who we know our God is. As you sit here today, whose son are you? Oh, we've got a lovely illustration of it this morning. <laughs> Please don't worry, whoever that was, don't feel bad. It's wonderful to have children in our midst, isn't it? Glorious. Um, so, whose who's son are you? What is your God like? When I was 16 years old, um, I was part of a, a ministry called King's Kids, which was like a sort of... Um, part of YWAM that took teenagers and children actually on mission trips um, in the summers and when the year I was 16 it was the Barcelona Olympics and so YWAM were doing a lot of outreach there in Barcelona and then teams of young people were being sent from Barcelona all over Europe and the world and I went on a team to Morocco where we sort of shared shared the gospel I, I do admit it was quite sort of cringy performing arts okay I'm quite glad there's no video of that but it was an extraordinary opportunity um, so during the the sort of missions gathering that happened before we were sent out um, we were having corporate worship it was probably a couple of thousand teenagers gathering in this huge marquee and um Worship and then different teaching for a couple of days. And on one of the days, a man called Floyd McClung came and spoke. I don't know if any of you have heard of him, but he wrote an extraordinary book called The Father Heart of God and was really key in the missions movements of the 60s and 70s and 80s. And um, before we'd gone to that meeting that evening, um, we, we'd got very little sleep. We were sleeping in a school, and our team didn't even have a classroom to speak in. We were sleeping in the corridor of a school. And so we were all exhausted. And in the afternoon, before going to the evening event, we sort of, some of the girls would just lay down and had a little nap. And during that nap, I had a dream. And in that dream, I saw myself and people I didn't know in Afghanistan. I knew it was Afghanistan, 
meeting people armed with Kalashnikovs and looking like, you know, very committed Muslims and leaders there and giving them Bibles. So I woke up from, it was quite a, it was quite a memorable dream. I woke up from this dream and told my friend Abby this dream. So we go into the meeting, worship happens, Floyd McClung is speaking, and as he's speaking, about halfway through his message, he just broke off and began to prophesy. And he began to say, I think there's someone here, and God has called you to a particular task, to go to Afghanistan. At which point I froze and I said to Abby, don't move. <laughs> Let's just not flinch at all, just keep looking straight ahead. And he carried on prophesying, and um, then he said, I'm going to pray for you every day until I sense this word has been accomplished. Off we all went on our mission trips. Scroll forward three years, I'm at university, and um, been involved in, in, it was during the 90s, and you know, I know this church was really touched by that wave of the Holy Spirit, and God did incredible things, and we'd gone around the world and done all sorts of things. And a small team of us felt God was calling us to go to Afghanistan. I shared that initial vision. And we thought, what we'll do is we'll go and scope it out. So we'll go to Afghanistan and just see how that, do a prayer and intercession trip first, three of us. And then we'll see what the options are um, about doing maybe the Bible bit later. But the night before, we, and we did, we, we got our friend who ran the um, Oxford University student newspaper to write a letter saying that the three of us were the Afghanistan correspondents of this newspaper and could we please have journalist visas? That's the only way you could get in as a journalist. And they gave us visas, which was quite extraordinary. So the night before we left, I had another dream and I saw us giving Bibles to the Taliban and I woke up that morning and shared the dream with the other two and I, I just said, I think God is saying now. So we went to Scripture Gift Mission in London where they have the Bible translated into all the languages it's been translated into and you used to be able to just go and take them to give them away and we filled our rucksacks with New Testaments and Bibles. So um, we got through various scrapes, including getting through a land border which involved the Taliban checking our luggage, which meant slinging the gun on their back and going like this. And bear in mind, we've got Bibles and one T-shirt on top. And we'd like, we don't know whether the Lord blinded their eyes to the Bibles or they just thought, wow, Westerners read a lot when they go on journalistic trips. So we found ourselves, we met a fixer, and it was completely miraculous. The BBC had just been in the city where we'd felt led to go. And in that city, the BBC had just been there with John Simpson filming a landmark documentary about the Taliban. And that meant that the top brass of the movement were in the city at the same time. And we found ourselves invited to go to a meeting point the next day. We had to get into a car and we were driven to the military headquarters of the Taliban. And there we met the education minister, the foreign minister, and the religion minister who called himself the keeper of the Holy Quran. 
and various other people. And we suddenly remembered, oh my goodness, we're journalists, so asked them lots of questions, which we did. Took lots of notes. But at the end of a few hours, um, I, was, I was the note taker as a woman, I wasn't able to speak, but at the end of a few hours, one of the guys on the team says, we've bought you a gift that we think is the most precious gift one human being can give another. It's the Holy Bible. And we all looked at the guy at the door with the gun. And he didn't shoot. And the keeper of the Holy Quran spoke next through translation. The education minister spoke English. He was the translator. Religion minister of the Taliban, this is what he says. He takes the Bible and he says, I know exactly what this book is. I have prayed to Allah for years that I could have a Bible. Thank you for bringing me a Bible. I'm going to read it every day till I finish it. We can ask the question, whose son are you? That's my God. A God who can hear the prayer of a man at the heart of one of the most fundamentalist regimes and can stir the heart of three obscure teenagers. A God who can do miracles and move mountains so that his word would go forth. It's life-changing. Who is your God? Whose son are you? A son is a representative, an heir. The son carries the DNA, the presence, the character, the inheritance of the father. Romans 8 says you and I are sons and heirs of Abba Father. So we're going to spend a few moments together considering who our God is. And I want to do it by thinking about some of the names of God. And we're going to focus actually still, stay in the Old Testament, to really dig into this. Whose are you? And how does that affect who are you? The most important name of God in the Old Testament is the name Elohim. And it comes 2,570 times in the Old Testament. 32 of them are in Genesis chapter 1. Elohim speaks of God as preserver, transcendent, mighty, and strong. God as the bringer of the universe into existence. That im or him plural ending is often followed by singular verbs. God is both singular and plural. God is purposeful, intelligent, unique. He's endlessly vast. He just surpasses our categories even of language. In no one lifetime could any of us come to the end of discovering more about Elohim. There is no bored religion or piety anywhere near Elohim. The brilliant atheist Bertrand Russell, um, he was probably the leading British atheist of the last century. His daughter was a Christian, and this is what she wrote. She said, I would have liked to convince my father that I had found what he had been looking for, the ineffable something he longed for all his life. I would have liked to persuade him that the search for God does not have to be in vain, but it was hopeless. 
He'd known too many blind Christians, bleak moralists who sucked the joy from life and persecuted their opponents. He would never have been able to see the truth they were hiding. Wow. Elohim is the opposite of that. Elohim is beautifully creative and brilliant. Elohim speaks of God as creator, beautiful, complex, mighty, transcendent, and strong. Whose son are you? What would that mean if we lived and walked in the identity of children of God into our world? If we remember whose we are, pastors, scientists, writers, nurses, artists, filmmakers, philosophers, lawyers, game creators, producers, actors, analysts, musicians, evangelists, athletes, doctors, hairstylists, designers, builders, administrators, justice campaigners, dancers, coders, farmers, conservationists, architects. Whose are you? If Elohim is with you, if Elohim's power fills you, if you are a representative on earth of Elohim, if you were to take the glory and creativity and power and beauty of Elohim into this world through your work, what would that look like? I suggest it might look like sons and daughters in this church, individuals in this church, writing songs and symphonies that are worthy of Elohim. It might mean creating equations or cures for diseases or designing buildings that speak of Elohim and the sheer dignity of human beings made in his image. Maybe someone who was filled with the power and creativity and potential of Elohim might design transport systems that actually work or might find or be given ways of addressing climate change or cures for diseases or ways of reshaping the economy that actually reflect the dignity of Elohim. Whose son are you? Have you reduced the Christian faith to piety, to a little bit of prayer every now and then? Brothers and sisters of St. Mungo's, may we... Go out into our world, our work, our community, our family and live in such a way so filled with Elohim that the world asks, whose son is that? Secondly, El Shaddai. This name of God, God Almighty, comes 48 times in the Old Testament and 31 of them are in the book of Job. The book of the Bible devoted to the question of human suffering, agony, and despair. Usually in English, the the name El Shaddai is translated God Almighty. God Almighty. 
And there are a few things going on in this name. The idols of the nations are called Shedim in Hebrew, and they are dependent on their worshippers for their existence. So idols are either figments of the mind or imagination of humanity, or they're literally made by human hands out of you know, bronze or silver or whatever. They're, they're material, but they're created by human beings. And um, they are in need of the type of worship that kind of is therapy for them, because we're ultimately their creator. That's the idea of the Old Testament, of what idolatry is. They're a figment of our minds or our hands that are for our convenience, disposable if things don't work out. In contrast, that's the Shedim. In contrast, the God of the Bible is El Shaddai. God Almighty over material things, circumstances, and us. But that Hebrew word is also a play on the idea of shad because shad speaks of the bosom of the mother. El Shaddai is an extraordinarily intimate kind of almightiness. There's a tenderness of God that that evokes the idea of a child being nursed with the milk of the mother by the one who is utterly almighty. And so in the storms of this life, the people of God, the children of God, the sons of God can walk and operate in this world because El Shaddai is all-powerful, he is almighty, we can trust him, and because we are intimately connected to him. He's so tender. One of the most powerful uh, ways I experienced this um, was a few years ago now, um, about eight years ago now, my father-in-law, um, who I obviously had known since I was dating his son, so we'd known each other for decades, and my husband had become a Christian as a teenager, 14, 15 years old, and had prayed for his dad, prayed for his parents, but his dad in particular, to come to know the Lord. And... Um, I mean, poor guy then has a daughter-in-law who's who's sort of trying to get him (laughs) to come to know Jesus for quite a long time. So I tried everything, you know. Every evangelistic conversation you could conceive of, I had with him. Um, Every piece of evidence, every tactic, technique, and also a lot of prayer. And, you know, he was very gracious, but very reserved, very sort of British and... Um, you know, didn't really want to argue, but just didn't ever really make any progress. I'm, I wonder if you have anyone in your life like that. It's just perfectly polite, but it's just, please stop. <laughs> um, so in the, um, in the course of his life, his, his, um, his wife very sadly died, and about a year after that, he himself became quite unwell. And my husband and I felt the Lord laying on our heart that we should make sure that one of us physically visited him. He lived just over an hour away, but that one of us would, would show up and be there with him every day. 
So although he had kind of carers and nurses and hospital appointments and because he lost his wife, we just wanted him to have that, that human contact and we felt that was a ministry. So it was a, a Sunday morning. At this point, we didn't know that he was terminal. Um, but it was a Sunday morning and my husband um, was leading a church and so he was leading the service. So I went early on the Sunday morning to visit and he was in the hospital at this point. And so we had a lovely chat and I talked to the nurses and just sort of made sure every little arrangement that needed to be made was made and brought in the food he wanted and all of that, the practical stuff. And then we're sitting there and I'm about to go and I just feel the Holy Spirit say to me, you need to pray for him and you need to ask him if you can pray for him. And I thought, I'm not going to do that. That will be so awkward. And so I sort of said no. And then the prompting came again. And I thought, oh, Lord, okay. So I mustered all my courage. And I said, Colin, can I pray for you? And I mean now out loud. (laughs) So it was a bit of a nervous silence. And he nodded. And then this is what he said. He said, every day, Frog, that's my husband's name, has been calling me or you know being here and he said dad I'm praying for you the boys are praying for you we love you he said I haven't known how to tell him about something that's happened and I said oh what's that he said well for the last three days there's been the physical presence of a man standing in the room and he sort of nodded his head towards where the man was standing and I said in a good way (laughs) I didn't really know what you know, I was not catching up. And he said, yes, it's Jesus. So then even I knew what to do, right? I said, you know, um, there's this famous verse in the Bible where Jesus says, I stand at the door and knock. Anyone who opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. And I said, Jesus doesn't want to stand in your room. He wants to come into your life. He's standing and knocking. And this is what it would mean. I explained to him what a sinner's prayer was. And I said, would you like to open the door to invite Jesus into your life? I think we should do that together out loud. So I prayed a sinner's prayer and he prayed it out loud and invited Jesus not just to be in his room but to come in. Then I prayed for him to be filled with the Holy Spirit and I can still see, you know, with the white pillow behind his head, the transformation of his countenance as the spirit of the living God absolutely filled him in the most extraordinary way. So after that we sort of said goodbye and I phoned my husband to say what had happened, got someone to get him out of the prayer meeting. And he was so shocked that he actually collapsed on the floor because it was so unlikely that this could have happened to this particular individual. For the next few weeks, um, my husband was able to read John's gospel with his dad, disciple him, pray with him every single day and choose the hymns then he knew he was dying for his funeral. And his dad said, I want you to preach Christ at my funeral. I want all of my colleagues to know what happened to me. 
And so my husband had the opportunity to preach to like 700 people. His whole village came and all his, his colleagues. Whose son are you? Who are you connected to? El Shaddai is almighty and is tender. Our God is beautiful and wonderful. Thirdly, Jehovah Jireh. This name of God is found just once in the Old Testament and it's found in Genesis chapter 2, verse 14. And we translate it, the Lord will provide. Those of you who've been a Christian for a long time might remember a funny song which had a sort of quite strident beat called Jehovah Jireh. Do you remember that one? And, um, and uh, so perhaps we've, we're kind of vaguely familiar with this. But when all seemed lost for Abraham, and he was going to lose his son, Abraham's son has carried the wood for his own sacrifice up Mount Moriah, and Abraham is now just preparing, facing the unthinkable, the sacrifice of of his own son. And God intervenes miraculously and provides. And that provision of the ram who is caught in the thicket is a a prophetic um, pointer towards the actual provision of God for us in history. His own son, Jesus, who will one day carry the wood for his own sacrifice up the very same hill. Mount Moriah is the Mount of Crucifixion. So God is Jehovah Jireh, the God who provides, the God who sees, whose prevision and his provision go together. Whose son are you as you walk out of this building today and you walk into the rest of your life and your week whose um, name and power and inheritance and presence and DNA are you operating? What are you carrying? If you're a child of God, according to the Bible, is Jehovah Jireh the God who provides? Is Jehovah Jireh operative in your life? Does your work and the way you live and move and have your being cause people to ask, Whose son is that? Or do you live in fear with a scarcity mentality, a hoarder's loft, keeping, gathering stuff just in case it runs out? Is God calling you and I and even this church to great works for this kingdom that would require you to be connected to Jehovah Jireh because you wouldn't be able to provide it yourself? When you know whose you are, it changes everything. It changes what is possible, what is plausible. It changes how you approach situations if you're connected to the God who provides. And I want to encourage you, church, this morning. He does provide. He does come through. Fourthly, Jehovah Shabbaoth, the Lord of hosts. This is God described in the Old Testament as the commander of the angelic host, the very armies of God. This comes in Isaiah chapter 1, verse 24, Psalm 46, verse 7, 2 Kings 3, verses 9 and onwards, Jeremiah 11, verse 20. 
So God is described not just as God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but also as a commander of an angelic heavenly host, an army. Whose son are you? very good friend of mine is a leader in um, the African church called Archbishop Ben Kawashi. And he spent his life in ministry serving in northern Nigeria, based in Jos, but into um, the whole plateau state where Boko Haram operate and where it's very difficult to be a Christian. You would say, if you met Ben, um, he might tell you this story, that he can show you the photo book of the people he went to Bible college with, and a large number of them have been martyred for their faith. Ben um, has an amazing wife called Gloria. And um, Gloria is an extraordinary um, entrepreneurial woman of faith who also kind of has a ministry of adopting people. He once told me he went away on a ministry trip, came home, and he had 20 new children. <laughs> At one point, he had 80 adopted children, and um, he, he loves her for it. One day, a group of jihadis came to the compound so that their home is sort of around a kind of like the garden, if you like, is in the middle, so it's kind of around a shared space in the middle. And some jihadis came to kill him because he's the leader of Christians. He's the archbishop and he's a man of incredible faith and breakthrough and extraordinary things happening, churches planted, all of that. So they've come to kill him, but he's not there. But Gloria's there. And they attack her in the most horrific way and they leave her for dead. Ben comes home and finds her. She's able to get to America and have wonderful, um, generous Christians provide, and she has the surgeries she needs, and her sight is saved and all sorts of other things. And um, the president offers them asylum because they're significant global Christian leaders. They've had this horrific persecution experience. They can now live in America. And so Ben says to Gloria, you know, this is the opportunity. She says, no way. God's called us. We need to go back. I'm going back and you're coming with me. So they go back. The jihadis return to kill him again. This time he is there. And they... Um, burn all of their possessions, including all their wedding presents. Everything they own that has any value is burned in a fire. And they want him to watch this. And then he's dragged into the middle of the compound and he's going to be executed. He's made to kneel. And he says to them, you claim to be people of God. Will you let me pray before I go to meet my maker? And they nod. So he begins to pray, and he's just kneeling there praying, and he's praying the African prayer of the century, praying, 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 and then he feels a hand on his shoulder, and it's his son. And his, dad, his son has returned home. He says, Daddy, what on earth has just happened here? He says, as I returned, a mob of jihadis was running in terror, saying they had seen seven, eight-foot 
military people chasing them away. And Ben looked with a huge smile and says, the Lord of hosts has come and delivered me. Praise God. Our God is the Lord of hosts. There are some people in this room right now who are facing intractable difficulty, opposition, darkness. And you need deliverance in that situation. You need the Lord of hosts to show up. Whose son are you? Could you walk in this world? Could you walk out of this room with a different posture, with a different attitude, if you really knew and believed God is the Lord of hosts, the one who has total authority over the powers of darkness, the one who can deliver? So whose son are you? Do you need the Lord of hosts right now? Do you need to recapture that vision of Elohim, the creator, to take hold of your life and pour into you what you need to arise and go into this world in your fields of work and family and community to create things and do things for his kingdom that will only be possible because of your connection to him? Do you need to know that the Lord is El Shaddai, that he's mighty over the storms of this life and he is so tender? He pours his love into our hearts in the most beautiful and intimate way. Do you need to encounter the Lord Jehovah Jireh, the one who provides? I want to invite you to stand. And we're going to pray together. We're going to invite the Holy Spirit to come and minister to us. This question, whose are you, reminds us that our identity is all about connection. Your connection to him changes everything. The creative, transcendent, brilliant, faithful, almighty, tender, delivering with his hosts, peace-giving, healing-providing God. And he's here by his spirit. So why don't we just wait for him for a moment. We're going to wait for about 30 seconds, just in silence and quietness. You might want to open your hands to him as a bodily posture of openness, of invitation. But there's no pressure to do that. If you'd like to do that, just open your hands to him and we're going to quietly wait on him for a moment.
Come Holy Spirit. Would you pour your love into our hearts? For those who need that connection re-established or established with Abba Father, that work of the Spirit, would you minister right now? For those of us who need a breakthrough, we're facing extreme darkness and difficulty and we need you, God, to show up as Jehovah Shabbat, the Lord of hosts. I want to pray that right now. Breakthrough in Jesus' name. Situations represented all across this space. We pray for that deliverance from darkness, that provision that is needed. We pray for a pushing back of enemies in Jesus' name. And where hope has been lost, let courage rise again. That because we're connected to you, we can walk in the spirit and face the next day, the day you've called us to. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. I want to pray for those in need of provision, a provision miracle. If there's anyone in the, in the room today who needs a provision miracle, just raise your hand. No one else is watching. Just raise your hand. God sees. Lord, we pray for provision miracles all over this place today. That we would encounter you as Jehovah Jireh, the God who provides in Jesus' name. Thank you, Lord. I'd just really like to pray over the young people in particular. I think lots of you are up there, so I'm going to kind of look in that direction as we pray. But just sense that God is doing something very special in this church amongst you young people and teenagers. And um, it's, it's awesome and it's good. And I want to pray that the Lord would hover over you and be pouring into your lives the resources empowering of his spirit that you need to lead in your generation. I want to pray for preachers and proclaimers of the word who will outstrip Jordan Peterson and Andrew Tate who will bring the word of God to your generation. I want to pray for scientists that God will inspire you to lead in that field for Jesus and to build and make extraordinary, creative, beautiful, wonderful things. Just pray, Lord, for your protection over these young people, that you will keep them in godliness, that you will keep them walking in the spirit. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord.